Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to First Move, where we begin with the latest from Afghanistan. Evacuation flights from Kabul airport have restarted after the dispersal of thousands of Afghan civilians desperately crowding the runway in a bid to escape. The Taliban have a brutal legacy and many Afghan citizens are terrified of a return to life under their rule. For the moment, though, the militants are trying to project a new image. They've granted all employees of the former government amnesty. A spokesperson also told CNN that the group will not seek retribution against those who worked with coalition forces or international organizations. Clarissa Ward has been reporting from the streets of Kabul, witnessing the Taliban takeover firsthand. She described the situation a short while ago to my colleagues. So the Taliban came out yesterday afternoon and basically told all government workers uh, that they could return to their posts today. So for the first time, we saw traffic policemen out on the streets. We saw markets, as you saw. We did the last live shot with you in a in a crowded market. There's a sense that there's more activity on the streets, more shops uh, that are now open, more government workers going back to their posts because the Taliban wants to show that it can go govern that can't it's not just a fighting force but that they can keep the lights on and this is how they're doing it basically i'm just going to step out of the shot and you can maybe take a slightly closer look these are taliban fighters just behind me they're on a, a an old humvee those humvees traditionally associated here with the nds which is uh, afghanistan's equivalent of the cia you can see they're all quite keen to pose for the camera because uh they're in pretty good spirits right now. They see themselves as being the victors in all this, and they see this as an opportunity for them to project a new image on the world stage. And I will say that in terms of the security situation, it's having an impact. The streets of Kabul are largely calm. That's partly because there are men like this on almost every other street corner, and it's also partly because people are petrified. I have been getting phone calls all morning, non-stop, people who work for the UN, people who work for the US military, translators, NGO workers, who are so desperately afraid now of what will happen next as the US completes this round of evacuations with chaos at the airport. What's their opportunity? What's their path out? What does their future look like? No answer to those questions at the moment. Clarissa Ward there in Kabul. Now, President Biden admitted on Monday that the fall of Afghanistan took place quicker than he anticipated. But he also staunchly defended his decision to withdraw U.S. troops from the country. He says the U.S. simply could not stay in Afghanistan forever. How many more generations of America's daughters and sons would you have me send to fight Afghanistan's civil war? When Afghan troops will not. How many more lives, American lives, is it worth? How many endless rows of headstones at Arlington National Cemetery? I'm clear on my answer. 
I will not repeat the mistakes we've made in the past. President Biden's buck stops here quote approach has received a critical reaction on Capitol Hill and presents Democrats with a sizable political challenge. John Harwood joins us now from the White House. John, good to see you. Um, There's a difference between when you leave Afghanistan and how you leave Afghanistan. And I think the president was pretty eloquent explaining the first thing, but he failed to address questions, criticisms on the latter. And now officials are recognizing, I think, that their, their competency is being questioned, severely questioned. Well, uh, certainly, Julia, their competence is being questioned for good reason. Those images that we saw on television yesterday were absolutely nightmarish for any commander in chief. The idea of the uh, American forces, uh, in effect, fleeing from uh, Afghanistan. The challenge for the administration uh, and a test of their competence, uh, as you indicated, is going to be if they can uh, make turn that from a short term humiliation uh, into something different in the long term. And that's still before them that the test of that is whether they can, in fact, control the airport and execute this large scale evacuation of tens of thousands of both American citizens and Afghans who helped the United States and their families. Uh, that's easier to do with people who are in Kabul, of course, than for people elsewhere in the country who would have to uh, get past Taliban checkpoints to get to Kabul. Uh, but the administration has the opportunity, uh, if they can execute that, uh, to change the um, uh, conclusions that most Americans will draw from this. The president's message, broadly speaking, about getting out of Afghanistan is popular with the public. Um, he uh, acknowledged that the situation deteriorated uh, quicker than he thought. He didn't quite connect that to the uh, the buck stops with me question. He, he, he uh, probably, uh, people watching that, uh, took more of a message of a president who was defiant about criticism than one who was acknowledging criticism. Nevertheless, the test is the evacuation uh, in the near term. And uh, John Kirby, the Pentagon spokesman, was out this morning uh, telling our colleague John Berman uh, on CNN New Day that more than 5,000 people per day could be evacuated. Well, if you uh, sustain that for a couple of weeks, you can get a lot of people out. We'll see if they can do it. Yeah, and that would mean that they can hit that evacuation date by the 31st of August, too. Um, but the questions are going to remain and they're going to continue to be asked about the, the apparent disconnect, as you've pointed to, between the White House's expectations of how this would play out and the, and the reality on the ground. But, John, is that what it comes down to for, for American voters as long as all the Americans can get out of Afghanistan, if they can get those that helped in a best case scenario, those that help the Americans out as well, actually an ensuing humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan matters little politically. Well, there there are multiple layers to this, uh, and it it obviously depends on events that haven't unfolded yet. The worst case scenario uh, is if you uh, botch the withdrawal and we see uh, uh, the Taliban slaughter uh, Uh, thousands of people, which uh, they're capable of doing, has not happened yet. Uh, In the longer term, then there's the question about uh, what happens to women in Afghanistan, how do the the Taliban conduct itself uh, on that score, and also whether uh, terror threats get reconstituted in a dangerous way. Um, uh, The latter, the terrorist threat, is something that I think is uh, probably less likely 
in a, uh, a dangerous way for the United States than the problems of for women in Afghanistan, which is almost a certainty. Um, the question is, uh, how do the American people process that? The, their most immediate concern is the cost in blood and treasure to Americans, uh, and then other things depend on the scale and how much people see of those uh, problems. John Howard, great to have you with us. Thank you for your perspective. So a challenge to some, an opportunity perhaps for others. China said today it's willing to work with the United States to avoid a humanitarian debacle in Afghanistan and to prevent the country from once again becoming a launch pad for terrorism. Chinese state media also attempting to use the crisis to drive a wedge between the U.S. and its allies by questioning America's security commitments. Stephen Zhang joins us now from Beijing. Stephen, no one wants a hotbed for future terrorism, whether you're the United States or China, but it has played into the hands of the Chinese in some sense that they can point the finger and say, look, to American allies, if you get into trouble in the future, America's not going to be there to support you. And that's certainly coming across from from Chinese state media. That's right, Julia. It's interesting because publicly the Chinese government has been putting on a very brave face saying they respect the will and choice of the Afghan people and saying they have been in contact with the Taliban leadership. And indeed, the foreign minister Wang Yi, who has just spoken to uh, Tony Blinken, as you mentioned, he actually met with uh, a co-founder of the Afghan Taliban and a senior leader uh, just a few weeks ago here in China. And during that meeting, he described the Taliban as uh, a major political and military force in the country that could play an important role in Afghanistan's uh, rebuilding. Now, this kind of conciliatory gesture is interesting because uh, in the past, officials and state media here have also described the Taliban as a terrorist organization. But as you mentioned, it's worth noting the state media coverage of the takeover of the uh, country by the Taliban because uh, many platforms, especially online platforms, have been cheering uh, this victory and uh, saying this is a turning point, quote-unquote, turning point in the decline of American hegemony with uh, one uh, very prominent newspaper uh, editor saying this, again, as you mentioned, shows how unreliable the U.S. is uh, abandoning its ally at at the most critical moments. And this, of course, is being used as an example to warn Taiwan. That is uh, a self-ruled democracy, uh, also a U.S. ally, but considered to be a breakaway province by Beijing that has always threatened to uh, take it back by force. Now, all of this propaganda, notwithstanding, though, there is some very serious concern both on the security and economic front uh, from Beijing because uh, th- because remember Afghanistan and China do share a border although that's a relatively short one according to the Chinese a very uh, very secure one but that's the reason uh, Wang Yi the foreign minister uh, both during his meeting with the uh, uh, Taliban leader but also during the call with Tony Blinken mentioned this group called East Turkestan Islamic Movement ETAN because that's a Uyghur Islamic organization whose uh, ultimate goal is to set up an independent state in the Chinese region of Xinjiang. In the past, officials and state media have said Uyghur fighters have been trained by the Taliban in Afghanistan in preparation to launch attacks here inside China. So uh, this, of course, is going to be a major concern, top priority for them now with the crisis unfolding in Afghanistan in in terms of the potential movement of people, ideology, but especially trained fighters 
fighters into China. But also, of course, don't forget, China has increasingly ambitious investments across the region with its Belt and Road Initiative, with a lot of huge infrastructure projects that have also increasingly become targets for terrorist groups. More recently, we have seen more than a dozen Chinese workers being killed by a suicide bomb just last month by a local affiliate of the uh, Afghan Taliban in Pakistan. So all of this is really a lot of stake for the Beijing leadership here. That's why they keep uh, emphasizing right now the key in Afghanistan is to establish stability. Julia? Mm, An incredibly complex relationship among many. Stephen Jang there, thank you so much for that. On now to Russia, who says the Taliban are sending, quote, a positive signal with their assurances so far. That, according to state media, quoting Foreign Minister Lavrov, Moscow has no plans to evacuate its embassy. And the Russian ambassador to Afghanistan says Kabul seems safer since the Taliban took control. Fred Blyken joins us now from Moscow. Fred, the statement from the foreign minister calls on all parties to refrain from violence. But I couldn't help but notice what appears to be a jab there, that this transfer of power occurred, quote, as a result of the almost complete absence of resistance Mm. from the National Armed Forces trained by the United States and its allies. I think you're absolutely right, Julie. I think there certainly is a jab towards the United States. And I think some, some pretty clear jabs, actually. If we look at the past 24 hours, you had the envoy of Russia to Afghanistan saying that, look, uh, when the Soviet Union left Afghanistan, at least the government they left behind lasted for three years, whereas the one the U.S. left behind didn't even uh, stay in power or didn't even last until the official withdrawal date. The Russians are also, quite frankly, uh, accusing the U.S. of sowing some of that chaos that we've seen over the past 24 hours or so at the Kabul airport saying that the fact that the U.S. withdrew so quickly and so hastily also may have left to, led to some of that. And as you, as you say, the Russians are saying they believe that right now things are calming down and that the situation is stabilizing uh, in Kabul, at least. And, and certainly the Russians really are keeping a close eye on how things evolve. They haven't abandoned their embassy. They say that their embassy is continuing to function. It was quite interesting to see those remarks just now from Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister. This was the first time that we've heard from the foreign minister about Afghanistan since, of course, the events have uh, accelerated so much. And on the one hand, he does say that they have seen some positive signals, but the Russians are also saying it is premature right now to draw any sort of conclusions and to think about what this could mean long term politically. Of course, here in Russia, the Taliban are still a banned organization. At the same time, the Russians for a very long time have been talking to the Taliban. And they do say they are going to see how they move forward with this, with possibly very soon a new power center and possibly a new government being in place in Afghanistan. And certainly the Russians are keeping a very open mind to that. I think one of the things that Moscow one has to say is probably benefiting from right now is that they have had a very long-term strategy as far as Afghanistan is concerned for a very long time. They started um, uh, talks with the Taliban. They started speaking with the Taliban. And now they say they're in a fairly comfortable position as far as the security of their embassy is concerned. But of course, also as far as the wider region is concerned as well, Russia, of course, very much situated in this region, very close to countries like Tajikistan and Uzbekistan that do have borders with Afghanistan. But the Russians are saying so far they're not seeing any spillover or destabilization of those countries. And they believe that at this point in time, the situation really is very much under control, Julia. Yeah. And in Russia's defense, they're not the only country that's criticizing the United States for the at least the short term chaos that we've seen uh, evolve and play out in Afghanistan. Fred, great to have you with us. Thank you. Fred Plyken there. President Biden fighting back as he faces mounting criticism over the fall of Afghanistan. I stand squarely behind my decision. After 20 years, I've learned the hard way 
that there was never a good time to withdraw U.S. forces. Coming up next, we'll be joined by Eurasia Group President Ian Bremmer to discuss the implications. This is CNN Breaking News. The Secretary General of NATO is speaking now about the situation in Afghanistan. Jens Stoltenberg called on the Taliban to allow all those who want to leave to be allowed to do so. Operations at the airport are now gradually resuming. And during today's meeting, allies announced that they are sending additional airplanes. We have also maintained our diplomatic presence. Our senior civilian representative, Ambassador Pontocorvo, and his team have been working closely with allies and the rest of the international community to coordinate and facilitate the evacuation. And we remain committed to completing evacuations, including our Afghan colleagues, as soon as possible. The Taliban must respect and facilitate the safe departure of all those who wish to leave. The airport, as well as roads and border crossing, crossings must be open. All Afghan men, women and children deserve to live in safety and dignity. There must be a peaceful transfer, transfer of power to an inclusive government with no revenge or retribution. NATO has been part of the mission in Afghanistan since its beginning in 2001, and Stoltenberg has just said they never planned to stay there forever. Joining us now is Ian Bremmer, president of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. Ian, great to have you with us. Um, they never planned to stay there forever. Echoing what President Biden said yesterday, it's time to leave. But I said it on the show earlier, and I'll say it again. There's a huge difference between saying when you're going to leave and how you're going to leave. How did this go so wrong? I, I couldn't agree with you more, Julia. I thought that President Biden was very compelling in explaining why it was time for the Americans to leave. And he was on the right side of that argument in opposing the surge under the Obama administration when he was vice president. He's not new to being a skeptic of this forever war. But if you had listened to his speech yesterday, you would have thought that the events of the last 72 hours simply had not occurred and that he had done nothing wrong. He said the buck stops with him, but there was no responsibility taken directly for, I mean, you know, you've seen the chaos on the ground, uh, the Taliban taking over the United States, evacuating its embassy, the American acting ambassador fleeing out of the country, while t thousands of Americans, maybe 10,000 Americans are still trapped on the ground in Afghanistan. And of course, those visuals that we all saw uh, with an American transport plane and Afghans literally huddling and, and tying themselves and falling to their deaths um, as the plane took off. That's on Biden, too. And uh, it's, it's a failure of intelligence uh, in terms of uh, lack of understanding uh, of, of the capabilities and willingness of the political leadership and, and military in Afghanistan to stand up. It's a lack of planning for what happens if your scenarios go wrong. Um, and it's a lack of communications, of honesty uh, with the American people and with allies around the world who are deeply disappointed with a Biden administration that they felt would be much more multilateral 
especially on an issue where the Allies have been fighting with the Americans for 20 years now. But the decision on how and when to leave was made unilaterally by the Americans. And that's not the way you treat your allies, Frank. No. Do you think it throws into question the broader intelligence capabilities, though? I mean, the Biden administration says they have the, you know, the intelligence capabilities to, to detect threats to the United States of America. I just I wonder whether that's still credible in light of the fact that there was a seemingly total lack of appreciation of the uh, infectious psychological blow to the Afghan forces, knowing that no one was coming to help, no one was going to provide further supplies, no one was going to provide air support. How can that not have been appreciated? Or was that intelligence perhaps provided and, and simply wasn't listened to? That The disconnect to me is, is sort of mind boggling. Well, I mean, I think a couple of things are going on. First, if you have the US military that is arguing that the Taliban are capable of standing up by themselves and for themselves. And that's one of the reasons why you can say the United States can actually leave. It's harder to, at the same time, deliver the mixed message of, but it might all fall apart. So I think that there was part of that. Um, and, and I also think uh, that the Biden administration was pretty stuck in to we we've already we have no choice but to leave because of where the Trump administration has already led us in terms of the significant drawdown of troops, as well as the engagement with the Taliban that was much strengthened. But your point, the key point here, is that even if you have all sorts of path dependency pushing you towards, we gotta cut and run, we're out of here, and it's gonna look ugly. Like no matter how well Biden orchestrated this, the Taliban were still gonna take over. The lives of the average Afghans were gonna end up the same as, as they are right now. But, but the allies and the Americans and the Afghans that have worked with the Americans, that's a very different story. And there is already blood on the hands of the Biden administration just from yesterday because the intelligence and the planning failures were so bad. There will be investigations. Unfortunately, the U.S. is so incredibly partisan right now. I mean, if the, if the Democrats can't run an investigation that is fair and bipartisan into January 6th because the Republicans won't let them. The Republicans surely won't be able to run an investigation into the Biden failure of this pullout because the Democrats won't let them. And so, I mean, truly the US today, by far, Julia, the most powerful country in the world, still on the back of Kabul, that hasn't changed at all, but also the most politically dysfunctional of the advanced democracies. And we're just not gonna be able to give a fair accounting to what has transpired over the last 72 hours. Does that blood on the hands then wash away? I mean, the optics over the short term, the 20th anniversary of September the 11th, we're gonna see celebrations in Afghanistan, um, US equipment on display, the Pentagon yesterday not being able to account for what's gonna to happen to American equipment, American weaponry, for example. Does any of that criticism weigh domestically on Biden? Do voters care? I guess I'm asking about humanitarian voters care, right? Voters, voters care right now, uh, Julie. This is a huge story, and a lot of uh, both Republicans and Democrats are are calling the Biden administration out. But you can already see the efforts of the hardcore Biden supporters saying that this was the best speech they'd ever seen yesterday. Uh, you know, kind of like Trump supporters would saying about the Trump speech. And I think as long as you don't see Americans getting killed. Uh, this is not going to be a big voter issue in 2022 or 2024. So 
I, I think that the blowback in the United States, I still think that the $3.5 trillion in infrastructure support gets through. And for the average American, that matters a lot more than the debacle in Kabul. That's very different, of course, than the way the allies respond, the way the Chinese respond, the way the Russians respond. But, but Julia, I want to be very clear. That speech that Biden gave yesterday made it seem as if what he had done was already finished. In other words, that we're looking at this conflict in the rearview mirror. There are still right. thousands of Americans on the ground in Afghanistan. And if we end up in a hostage type situation, if these Americans die, if this becomes an ongoing set of American headlines for months, and you and I are still talking about this in September and October and November, this will destroy Biden's presidency. And I don't think that that is a likely scenario, but it's not 1%. And, and the very fact that that is even on the table today it shows you how staggeringly bad the implementation of this policy actually was. Let's talk about the international uh, international aspect of this too. And you, and you mentioned China specifically. There have been various tweets yeah. from what is essentially state media in China pointing at Taiwan and saying, look, this is what happens when you think America is an ally, you get into trouble and they don't come to your aid. Do you think China really thinks the calculus as far as Taiwan has changed in any way as a result of what they've decided to do over, over Afghanistan? No, no, but they see a propaganda opportunity. They see mm. the ability to lean into the Americans on their heels right now, given how badly Kabul has gone. And if you are a member of the Taiwanese government or a member of the Taiwanese public, you probably are a little bit more concerned about how longstanding the American uh, commitment to you is actually going to be. But, but let's be clear, this isn't like Taiwan, it's like Ukraine. In Ukraine, the United States and the Europeans basically told them, yeah, we know we said that we would defend your territorial integrity back when you gave up your nuclear weapons, but we don't really care about you. We're not letting you into NATO. We're not letting you into the European Union. And so, by the way, when Russia takes Crimea and then invades southeast Ukraine, we're, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll sanction them, but we're not really going to defend you. We don't care. Georgia, same thing. Taiwan is not that. Taiwan is actually a principal national security interest in the United States. If China takes Taiwan, we don't have semiconductors in the United States. And I, I promise you, not only will the Americans respond for that national interest, because that is a foreign policy for the American middle class, but the Chinese government is well aware of this. So let's recognize the Chinese state media is very good at propaganda. They're very good at posturing. They understand that they have a political win here that they can lean into. That's very different than, than them planning to suddenly take out the Americans in Taiwan. Makes perfect sense to me. Talk to me about Europe as well, because there have been varying degrees of, um, sort of withering responses from the Europeans. We weren't consulted on the timing, the execution of this decision. Also, I think Europe staring down the barrel of the threat of this becoming a rallying cry for other extremists around the world and potentially a hotbed. Also, the risk of a, another refugee crisis, too. How likely the two of those things? Well, I mean, Biden's speech yesterday, let's imagine uh, how the Europeans would have listened to it. Um, you know, we're done. We're out. This isn't a priority for us. There aren't many Afghan refugees that are trying to get to the United States. There are a lot of them that are going to end up in Europe. They'll end up in Turkey. They'll end up in the EU. That's why you see the French president, uh, the German chancellor, others uh, talking about that in the last couple of days. It's a big deal for them. They were not consulted. Uh, the decision that was made to end 
uh, the U.S. military intervention, the longest war in U.S. history. We fought it with all of our allies. We left alone. And uh, they were told about the decision, but the policy review that was made was purely internal within the Biden administration. And if you're an American ally that was requested to fight on behalf of the U.S. after 9-11 for 20 years and you spent money and you lost lives and you were informed by the Americans of that, whether it's Trump or Biden, how do you think you feel about that? Another small one uh, for you, Julia, this weekend, the acting American ambassador to Afghanistan left, left the country. Um, and uh, the British ambassador is still on the ground and trying to help the Brits get out of the country. It's a small thing. It's a simple thing, but it hurts. It hurts that there was no coordination on any of these issues. And, you know, I mean, I'll take one other thing. We, we now hear just this morning, I heard completely separate issue. The World Health Organization telling the Americans, do not give everyone in your country boosters before the rest of the world has even gotten their first shot. And we're not talking just the immunocompromised. We're talking everyone in the United States going to be rolled out. Uh, Biden will talk about that this week. This is the same issue. Biden is president of the United States for the American people. But the level of indifference to allies and the average citizen outside the U.S. is starting to really grate on many that have been there with the Americans for a very long time. We have to do a better job of it. And we thought we'd been through four years of it and it would change. Ian, what a mess. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, as always. Ian Bremen, president of Eurasia Group. Thank you. We're back after this. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome back. We return to the Taliban's seizure of power in Afghanistan. Sources say the Taliban co-founder and deputy leader is returning to the country. He hasn't set foot there for 20 years and currently heads their political bureau in Doha. He was the chief Taliban negotiator with the United States. In Kabul, flights have resumed and Western governments are evacuating their citizens. Left behind, though, are many Afghans who worked with them. The U.S. president defended the decision to withdraw U.S. troops, saying the Afghan government had collapsed faster than he anticipated. As convincing as some may find President Biden's argument, some images simply speak louder than words. And scenes of panic and desperation like those that unfolded at the Kabul airport on Monday have underscored just how chaotic the situation has become. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh has more from Kabul. This is the only way out for so many. The airport road jammed, chaos, over a trillion dollars spent, and this is what the end looks like. Walk where you can't drive. Just ahead of us is the gates into the airport, and this is the panicked scene of many people still moving there despite how hard it's been. At the entry to the last bit of Afghanistan America controls, there is panic. They're shouting tanks, right? Yeah, they say that. Let's turn around. Tanks, someone shouts. But who is doing crowd control outside America's evacuation spot? The Taliban. With vehicles they've taken from the Afghan army, paid for by America, now used to keep the desperate crowds back. People whose only hope is to get out, possibly with American help. Crowding at gates trying to clamber walls originally built to keep an insurgency out, at one time pushing en masse and being sent running. Nearly every gate with a crowd fueled with the idea this is their only way out. US troops at the perimeter shot dead two Afghans who they said were armed but later admitted were not Taliban. 
But inside the airport, the great escape was not going according to script, and check-in security had collapsed. Afghans, convinced the promise of a flight out was their only life ahead, clambering over walkways and tarmac the US spent billions on to maintain its presence. And then this startling image, one of the US's largest cargo planes taxiing, laden with Afghans who did not want to be left behind. Later, a plane takes off, and what you're about to see is disturbing. As the plane ascends, two objects, or people, appear to fall from the fuselage. But the sheer scale of those who needed help meant it was even harder to come by. Civilian flights cancelled. Even the Americans had to pause operations till they could regain control. These images from satellites in space showing just the volume of people thronging in and around Hamid Karzai International Airport, the symbol of the United States' billions spent in a 20-year project. The US always wanted to win hearts and minds here, but their swift, unconditional departure has instead filled them with panic. Nick Payton-Walsh, CNN, Kabul. As Nick reported there and highlighted the sheer desperation of those trying to escape Afghanistan, my next guest knows what it's like to become a refugee. Born in Kabul, Khaled Hosseini was granted asylum in the United States after the Soviet Union's invasion back in 1979. His best-selling book, The Kite Runner, is a coming-of-age story set against the rise of the Taliban. He's also a goodwill ambassador for the United Nations Refugee Agency, and he's demanding answers from President Biden. Khaled Hazani joins us now. Khaled, thank you so much for uh, making time for us today. I don't think anybody, wherever we are in the world, watching these images can remain unmoved. But I know it's personal for you. What what do you make of what you're seeing? Uh, it's heartbreaking. I've been in that airport, airport many times. Uh, the images of those people clinging to the fuselage of the airplane as it's taking off. I don't think I'll ever forget those images. It just speaks to the level of fear and despair that people feel at the arrival of the Taliban and the departure of the Americans, the uncertainty that lies ahead. Um, it's just, I don't think I'll ever forget those images. I don't think any of us will. Um, what did you make of what President Biden said yesterday? Because you're actually very vocal on social media and you were raising questions about not only what he said, but I think more importantly, what he didn't say. Yeah, look, I, I, I like President Biden, I voted for him, um, but I am disappointed in the way this, this, uh, this withdrawal has been carried out. The question I would have for President Biden really is, what do we tell the American people, let alone the Afghan people, was a legacy of the last 20 years? Uh, before the withdrawal, you could point to a, a number of advances that have been made in Afghanistan. Certainly the last 20 years have been challenging, beset by mistakes, miscalculations, and many tragedies. But still, you know, life expectancy in Afghanistan rose. Women, women returned to the workforce and worked for the government. Millions of girls returned to school. Uh, so there were a lot of positive developments uh, uh, along with all the, the problems that we have been well documented. Well, what happens to all that? If President Biden were to meet a Marine who lost both her legs in Afghanistan and she said, what did I lose my legs for? What can President Biden say? Um, you know, we did root out uh, Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, he can say that, but now the Taliban are back and, and uh, you know, it's entirely possible that Afghanistan will become another foothold for international terrorism again. Hopefully not, but that's entirely possible. Khalid, at this stage, the Taliban are making all sorts of promises that 
females will be able to continue their education. I assume there's all sorts of logistical problems with that. Schools must be built to allow segregation. But let's assume that those things can be done. Do, do you believe the promises that, that the Taliban are making, at least at this stage, that perhaps lessons have been learned, that they are ready to lead a nation this time around and, and allow some of the things, as you've pointed out, the freedoms, particularly for women and children, or... Are you deeply skeptical and fearful? I'll believe it when I see it. Um, when I speak to colleagues in Afghanistan, some in Kabul, they say we had a hope for the future, we had a hope for a better tomorrow, all that's being crushed. Uh, the Taliban have to change their ways, not just for the good of the Afghan people who are now uh, under their rule, but also for their own good for the possibility that they will be a credible player in the region for their own viability. It behooves them to change with the time. So to realize that the Afghanistan that they fled from in 2001 is not the Afghanistan that they've conquered, that they've conquered in 2021. This is a vastly different country. A lot of gains have been made. Personal freedoms have been enjoyed by the Afghan people the last 20 years. Uh, they've gained rights that they've become accustomed to. And the scaling back of all those advances and all those rights is going to be very onerous burden for the Afghan people. And I hope the Taliban realize, not just for the good of the Afghans, but themselves and their regime, that they have to adapt with the times. What's most important today amidst the chaos that we've seen over the, the past few days? Is it, and again, you've said this on social media refugees, protecting those people that, that want to leave and, and want to escape. And do you think the Taliban allow that to take place? Because it is a, a mighty brain drain of talent, of education from the country too. Are you concerned that perhaps at some point they'll say no more? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, uh, all the uh, organizations that I'm speaking to are gearing up for a mass displacement of Afghans. Already since the beginning of the year, over half a million, half a million Afghans have been displaced and they've fled to, Af to Iran and Pakistan have been displaced internally. So we can expect that to continue. Um, the brain drain happened in the 80s. It could happen now. Uh, a lot of young, urban, professional, educated Afghans are... Uh, terribly anxious and terribly worried about what the Taliban are going to do, and therefore I, I would understand their decision to leave. Uh, I would ask the United States, I would ask the United States partners uh, to keep their borders open, to allow Afghan refugees in. Uh, you know, after we left, uh, the United States left Vietnam in 1975, uh, President Ford signed the Indochina Migration and Refugee Assistance Act, which allowed the special status to Vietnamese, uh, to refugees from Laos and Cambodia to enter the United States under a special uh, status. And I would hope and pray that uh, the United States does the same for Afghan refugees. Yeah, we pray with you. Um, Khaled, I read your book when it first came out, and I think it's a sweeping arc, a portrayal of the the tragedy, the, the beauty of a nation, the, the challenges um, do you fear that the country is going back to where it was at the beginning of when you began your book and, and described the rise of the Taliban in the country and all the challenges that, that ensued? Is that where the country's headed without international support, ongoing support? Well, far more importantly than what I think, I think a lot of Afghans and certainly colleagues that I've spoken to and ordinary Afghans I've spoken to feel that way. Um, again, 
uh, it's a question of how the Taliban are going to behave in the coming days, weeks, and months. Certainly they could surprise us, us pleasantly and show that indeed they have moderated their ways and changed their methods. And they're not going to subjugate the Afghan people and impose on them the draconian laws and restrictions that they did in the 1990s. I want to point especially to women and girls. Yes. They're absolutely essential to any Afghan society. That uh, They're absolutely essential and their rights and their freedoms must be preserved. They must be allowed to contribute to Afghan society to the rebuilding of this country and to be a meaningful part of Afghan society. They cannot be subjugated and locked up in homes once again. We pray with you. Kalata Sunny, thank you for joining us on the show today, author of The Kite Runner There. Thank you once again. Thank you. Aftershocks, rain and mudslides in Haiti just ahead. We're live in devastated Port-au-Prince as Haitians struggle to recover from the deadly earthquake and now a tropical storm. Stay with CNN. Tropical storm Grace brought heavy rain to Haiti late Monday as the island nation recovers from Saturday's 7.2 magnitude earthquake. Aftershocks and mudslides are making it harder for crews to reach those who might need help. More than 1,400 people have lost their lives because of the quake. Frustration with the Haitian government is now growing too because help has been slow to roll out. CNN's Joe Johns joins us now from Port-au-Prince. Joe, I can't imagine the situation there. Political crisis, COVID crisis, and now dealing with this too. Absolutely, Julia. It is a shocking situation for Haiti and it is very difficult, of course, for this government to respond simply because of the instability here. Instability, by the way, in Haiti is endemic, despite the fact uh, that it seems like uh, a surprise, if you will, that the president was assassinated. And so how does that affect the current situation uh, with the earthquake? The fact of the matter is we have instability at all levels. It creates a difficulty for the government to provide the services necessary to even help countries that are coming in and trying to lend assistance. For example, on the roads outside of Port-au-Prince, here the capital, there's a level of lawlessness, gangs and whatnot that make it difficult for individuals who are trying to get help and assistance down to the people who need it outside the city uh, to get that assistance there. So uh, we're in a position right now where outside organizations, outside countries do continue to lend aid, such as the United States Coast Guard, the medevacs of people who are injured uh, down at the earthquake scene continue, those people being brought to hospitals here in Port-au-Prince, USAID also lending aid. Uh, The situation is severe, as I said. The latest numbers we have include 1,400 people killed, something like um, 7,000 people injured, and multiple thousands of houses destroyed. Back to you, Julia. Breaking uh, hearts with everybody there, and uh, Joe, thank you for that report. Joe John's there in Port-au-Prince for us. Okay, coming up, EU officials are about to hold an emergency meeting on the fall of Afghanistan, what they'll be discussing and how they're reacting to the Taliban takeover next. 
Welcome back. In just a few minutes' time, EU officials are set to hold an emergency meeting on the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. The bloc's foreign affairs chief saying Afghanistan stands at a crossroad. Security and well-being of its citizens, as well as international security, are at play. Melissa Bell is live in Paris with more. Uh, Melissa, you and I have watched the European response, I think, to varying degrees has been withering. Emmanuel Macron talking about the risk that Afghanistan becomes a haven for terrorists again, and I'm, I'm quoting him, also refugees. What can be done? What will be discussed today? Well, today for the European Foreign Ministers, Julia, it's going to be very much about, first and foremost, the situation of European nationals. And again, remember, they can't organize getting visas for the Afghans who've held them along the way together, uh, as Americans hand, have, can, for instance, so they'll be talking about that, how to best coordinate their response. And it's been, at best, haphazard so far. We expect uh, a little bit later this afternoon, the first plane of French nationals to arrive here in Paris. The plane was dispatched overnight bringing in special French forces back through Abu Dhabi so that French citizens could come back. back. They'll be amongst the first. Uh, Then, of course, all the Afghans who helped European forces along the years, they'll be given help. But also what's likely to dominate this meeting is already the migration crisis that the European Union expects could result from this latest wave of instability in Afghanistan. Remember that what happened back in 2015, those fast waves of migrants that came over the course of several months from Syria but also from Afghanistan caused such a political fallout over the months that came that this is one a sort of traumatism here in Europe and one that is already being talked about. In fact, in his address, Emmanuel Macron last night explained about the fact uh, that it was going to be necessary to look to avoid uh, those flows of irregular migration, something that has earned him a lot of criticism, even as we see that desperate need in Afghanistan. Antonio Guterres speaking last night about the fact that there are 18 million Afghans, half of the population, Julia, in desperate need of humanitarian aid, that Europeans should already be talking about bolstering their defenses, their borders, some, something that's shown quite, proven quite shocking to a lot of people, and yet that's been the forefront of many minds, not just the French president, but it's at the heart of a plan that's being forged by the Germans and the French and that will be presented at this meeting later today to try and help those neighboring countries, so Turkey, Iran, Pakistan, to better absorb the flows of migration in order that migrants that don't then head towards Europe. That is likely to dominate this this afternoon's meetings of European foreign ministers as the rest of the world looking at a crisis that is unfolding much faster than anyone might have expected, Julia. Yeah, we need a G7, a G20 response to this, I think, Melissa Bowlem, as you quite rightly suggest, I think. Melissa Bow there in Paris. Thank you for that. Okay, that's it for the show. Stay safe, connect the world with Halagrani is next. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. 
It could be used on an upcoming episode.